nice to see you here this evening and presumably some of you have already meditated in the past and some would like to make a beginning. How many of you would like to make a beginning of it? Good. Come right here. There's lots of room right here. So those of you who have already meditated and know already quite a bit about it, please have compassion for those who don't because I'm going to start right at the beginning. And what I'm going to say you may have already heard several times. Of course one does forget, but on the other hand, we, uh, we do need to know it from the ground up. So if you have already heard what I'm going to say, just be a little patient, that's all. And uh, forgive me for repeating all the things that are known to you. For those of you who have not meditated yet, there are two things that you should know. The why and the how why you should meditate and how you should meditate. Because if you don't know the why, you won't carry on with it. And even when you do know the why, well, it's touch and go. As all of those that have meditated already know. But if you don't know why, for sure it isn't going to happen. There's got to be an impelling reason behind it. All the things we do every day have impelling reason behind it and you know what that reason is have you ever given it any thought why we do the things we do only got one reason and that's survival we go shopping we eat we drink we sleep we go to work and make money we go to buy a car to get to work we go on a holiday in order to have a bit of a uh, rest from all this work the whole thing is survival and yet I can give you a written guarantee none of us are going to make it nobody's going to survive so if we don't have any higher ideals and if we don't do something which is a little bit removed from just the ordinary everyday activity which does not provide anything other than that we're wasting a very valuable human lifetime so if we have found that maybe that what we've been doing every day ever since we came around this time day after day has not totally satisfied has not totally fulfilled us then people search around for something else. In the West, the offers are innumerable. All sorts of therapies, all sorts of uh, different ideas on how to uh, get along with one's uh, neighbors, all sorts of ideas 
how to improve the quality of one's life. That's very good. However, if the quality of one's interior being is not improved, the quality of one's life cannot be improved. Because the quality of one's life cannot be bought. It's not for sale. The quality of one's life comes from one's inner experience. And therefore, we need to learn, find out, practice how to improve our inner being. The way we can do that, come on in, come, 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 here, come sit down, plenty of room here. Here, come. Come, come. The way we can learn to do that is by getting a different slant on things, seeing things from a different standpoint, one which will ultimately be so utterly removed from the one we've always had that everything looks entirely different, like 180 degrees turned around. But in the beginning, what we need primarily is to get a mind which is able to stay in one spot for some length of time. Now that sounds utterly simple, doesn't it? Obvious, what could be difficult about that and why should that help anything? <coughs> well, anybody who's ever tried to meditate, as quite a few of you have, will know how difficult it is and why it changes something. I will give you an analogy of the mind with the body. Now, we have two aspects of ourselves who are often at loggerheads with each other. One is mind and one is body. Now, the body we're quite familiar with and we try to treat it in the best possible way. Sometimes, not so cleverly, but certainly trying to give it the best we've got. We give it the best food we can find, whether that is particularly what we like to eat or maybe it even it is health food. We try to give it some exercise so that it doesn't become totally uh, paralyzed, at least walk from here to there. We certainly try to give it a good rest at night so that it has some energy again in the morning and we wash it at least once a day to keep it clean. Now all of that, come, 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 sit down. Come, plenty of room here, it's all empty. Now all these activities directed towards the body, which includes giving it medicine when it's sick, are of course quite all right. They're necessary for survival and for survival with the least physical uh, pain and suffering. But they don't take into account that the mind needs at least that much attention, if not more. Because the mind is in charge of the body. Nobody whose mind didn't say this evening, I'm going to go there, 
could have brought their body here. First, got to get it clear in the mind that I want to go here, and then you can bring the body here. The mind is in charge of the whole life that we're leading. So we have to do the same for our mind. We have to give it the best food available. And health food for the mind is more important than health food for the body. And if you don't believe it, you can try it in the future and see. And it needs to be washed and cleaned up. Unfortunately, not with soap and water, which makes it easy for the body. It needs exercise in order to stay um, movable, flexible, malleable, and it needs a rest. And it also needs medicine when it's sick, and not shock treatment, not that sickness and not that medicine. Buddha said, all of us are little sick because we don't see things the way they are and that's why we are constantly in trouble and if you look at the world at large coming and see it through our media you will see that the world at large is sick and when you think about it for a moment it's not them out there it's everyone it's not because others are different from us. It's a totality. So what we need to do for the body, we definitely have to do for the mind. There's no difference. On the contrary, the mind has to have far more attention than the body. So the health food for the mind is, of course, the input we give the mind. That we have to change slowly. But in the beginning, we can already make attempts at learning something about a spiritual teaching which we can actually practice. Spiritual teachings are only valuable when we can actually practice what they teach. If they're only a belief system or if they're only an interesting historical document, they're of no use to us, on the contrary. And if they have any kind of threat in them, they're even more useless. They have to become something that we can actually do. Most spiritual teachings have that in them, except that we cannot see it or we don't find the teacher to explain it to us. The uh, exercise which we have to give the mind is the ability it has to learn to stay on one subject. And only when we start meditating will you realize how incapable an untrained mind is to stay on one subject even half a second. Unbelievable, isn't it? But that's the way it is. And you'll all find out in a very short time, as soon as I finish speaking. And you don't have to believe it or not believe it, you just have to do it. And as you do it, you will find that you so. That does not mean minds which have 
try to get trained in knowing something. This is not knowing something. Knowing is input. It's like eating. See, food for the mind and can very often be good food for the mind. But it doesn't have that exercise in it which means that the mind can actually stay put where we put it, when we put it, at our choice. Now that's the exercise. But one of the most important things that we have to give the mind is a rest. You know, people go on holidays and what goes? The body. The mind's just as busy as it's always been. The body might be lying in a deck chair by, uh, by the ocean uh, under beautiful blue sky and enjoying a very nice uh, tropical breeze and the mind is thinking and it thinks from morning to night and it dreams from night to morning the most expensive tool that we have in this world is our mind it is the most valuable one there is nothing can compare it isn't the rockets that could go to the moon. It's the mind that made the rockets. There's nothing, no computer yet, that can take place of mind. And yet, most people take it for granted, pay very little attention to it, and accept it the way it is. The rest that the mind needs is the same as we would give any tool that we have. We wouldn't leave a good tool out in the open to get rusty. We wouldn't leave it out there to have no oil in it. We wouldn't run an expensive tool uh, without giving it any moment of um, uh, respite. We would look after a very expensive tool. And yet, we could buy a replacement. I'll try and buy a replacement for the mind. It just isn't available. We've got to give it a rest. We've got to give it a rest from all that thinking. Most people who haven't meditated don't know that they're thinking all the time. They'll soon find out the minute they start meditating. This is what runs down the power of the mind. It runs down the energy. And even though we sleep and have renewed energy in the morning from the body, the mind hasn't had that kind of renewal. The only way it's going to get renewal is when it learns to meditate where it can stay on the meditation subject without having to think of anything. Of course, a mind which is filled with problems will think of the problems. An untrained mind will think of anything. But with a little patience, with a lot of determination and a bit of support from friends and others, one can get it to a very good uh, meditation uh, ability in not such a long time. And then, when we do get that rest from thinking, the mind re-energizes. And with that additional energy, then we can start seeing things as they really are. The mistaken view that most people have about meditation is this is going to solve my problems. This is going to give me peace. This is going to give me happiness. Nothing of the kind. This is hard work. 
And seeing you're here tonight, you're going to try it. And as you're going to try it, you may decide this is too hard work, I won't come back tomorrow, that's fine. You'll be part of the great majority. It's hard work to, to get the mind to stand still. And to get that peace of mind, and to get that happiness that people hope for in meditation, is possible. But it is a side product. It's a side product on the way, because the purpose of meditation in the Buddhist tradition is insight. Insight in Pali is called vipassana. Maybe you have heard the word. It does, it's not a method. It means insight. That's the purpose. And insight means seeing things as they really are, not the way we'd like them to be and not the way we usually think they are, but as they really are, not having any objection to the law of nature. The law of nature is that we get born, often get sick, decay and die. That all that we own, that we love, that we have, that we are uh, attached to, changes and vanishes. These are laws of nature and nobody likes them. And the foolishness is to try and push oneself against it and then call these things a tragedy when they happen. Our dislike of the laws of nature and our trying to manipulate them shows itself in our environment. The environment which gets manipulated, the environment which we don't like the way it is and want it otherwise. We just don't like the laws of nature. But within ourselves, we also try to manipulate. We try to put spare parts in when things uh, run out of uh, being able to work for us. Well, those spare parts also deteriorate after a while. We cannot possibly escape the laws of nature. And seeing things as they really are means that we see those laws and many others. And as we see them, we finally get away from all things that we call suffering, dislike, uh, objectionable, and so forth. That's the aim. And therefore, meditation will bring peace and happiness, but not as a cherry on top of the cake we already have, but only when we finally decide we don't need the cake. Then it will bring that. So the mistaken idea that meditation, true meditation, based on thousands of years of tradition, is another kind of therapy which will do it for me, is wrong. It can be therapy, but nothing will do it for me. We have to do it ourselves. It's strictly a do-it-yourself job. You can get all the guidelines that you could possibly want, probably more than you want. The Buddha gave, in our tradition, 17,500 discourses, all of them guidelines on how to get rid of the difficulties and the problems of being a human being, all of them geared towards step-by-step -step advancement and growth. We don't have to know all of them. We can have those guidelines if we want, but they are nothing but a roadmap, an excellent roadmap 
absolutely detailed with road signs at every corner but no armchair traveler will ever get to any destination we've got to travel and using that road map our traveling is much facilitated because if we travel without a road map we do go around in circles very difficult to find our way and because none of us are spiritual giants and don't need to be it is such a help to have such an excellent spiritual roadmap where we can check out the truth of the roadmap at the very first signpost. Having started on the way, we can check it out at the first signpost. But we need a little more motivation to do it than just wanting peace and happiness out of the meditation because that is not available at the first try. It's not even available at the tenth try. It takes time. So the motivation that we need has to be tampered also with our wish to have a spiritual direction. And I'm quite uh, deliberately not using the word religious because one can be very religious without being spiritual in the least but can be very spiritual without being religious. One can, of course, combine the two. But usually, a person who is very spiritual might um, be more interested in that. So if we can balance our wish for peace and happiness through meditation with a desire also to have spiritual values embedded in our lives and know a direction in which to go, we have a much better chance of success. Otherwise, the disappointments will outweigh the successes. The ability to rest the mind eventually doesn't mean the mind becomes a blank. It means that the mind is able to do what we ask it to do. And that is such an outstanding feat that it really needs practice. And naturally, anyone who is able to ask the mind to do what, it, what we want it to do will never ask it to be unhappy. unhappy. That would be very foolish, wouldn't it? Nobody in their right mind would allow the, their mind to be unhappy. But we allow it. Why? Because we're not in charge. So anyone who gets unhappy knows very well they're not in charge of their mind. And this is where meditation will take us when we're able to keep our mind on the meditation subject. Besides giving the mind the flexibility, malleability, and uh, expansiveness, which comes from a well-exercised mind. Just as a well-exercised body has strength and has power, so the same for a well-exercised mind. And that strength and that power of the mind is then used in order to change our emotional and mental viewpoints. As we do the meditation, we will find that there are ups and downs. Some days it's better than others. This is very easily understood 
when we pay a little more attention to what we do the whole day. If we want to keep meditation going as part of our daily activity, we need to watch our activity of the mind all day long. Nothing could be more important for anyone than to watch their mental activity all day long. If we allow the mind during the day to become depressed, hateful, angry, uh, worried and fearful, have anxiety, have en envy, jealousy, naturally our meditation is going to work well. We'll bring that kind of thinking into the meditation. Therefore, it's absolutely essential that when one wants to become a meditator, that one watches one's thinking process during the day. In the beginning, this is difficult. The better the meditation is, the easier it is to watch one's thinking process. The more we watch our thinking process, the easier is the meditation. So you have catch-22. They both work together, and they need to reinforce each other. Now, if we watch our thinking <coughs> process during the day, we will have a much smoother way of living our lives. We, may be, we must be able to distinguish between our wholesome and unwholesome thinking and learn to discard one and cultivate the other. That will make it possible to meditate properly. Our daily activities are only the triggers. Our reaction is our thinking process. And the triggers are not at fault. And this is something that we need to learn right from the start. It isn't somebody else's fault. It's always my own reaction, no matter what happens. Now, most people find that difficult in the beginning to practice, and some people find it even difficult to accept. But if you think for a moment of the a little toy that children have, a jack-in-the-box, if a child touches the lid of the box just lightly, the little doll sitting on a spring jumps out. Then somebody comes along and pulls that doll out of the box. And the child can come along with a hammer and hit the lid. Nothing jumps out. Whatever jumps out of here is, is because it's sitting in here. And some people only need to be touched very lightly and everything jumps out already. And some people have to touch a little harder and they jump out. And most people say it's because he or she did, said, came, didn't do, whatever it is. It's nothing of the sort. It's because it's all sitting in there just waiting to be touched to jump out. Once it's gone, nothing jumps out. Well, that's the kind of happiness one can get from meditation. It takes a little while. How long it takes is anybody's guess. The Buddha said there are four kinds of people. One kind practices and has a lot of dukkha, which dukkha, the word dukkha means everything that's unsatisfactory, painful, suffering. And it takes them a long time to have any results. 
Then there's that kind of, those kinds of people that they practice, they also have a lot of dukkha, but they have results very quickly. And then there are people who have a lot of sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha, pleasure, happiness. And it takes them a long time to have any results. And then there are those that have a lot of sukha and they have results very quickly. Well, I hope that all of you belong to the last kind. <coughs> There's no way of knowing. You can have to find out yourself. That it takes determination and <coughs> perseverance and commitment is without a question. It's not just another hobby. As another hobby, it has absolutely no effect. It is just something that also didn't work. With commitment and dedication, it works. It needs to be embedded in a spiritual path where one's thinking processes are geared towards a spiritual growth. It's impossible to stay with only material values and make meditation work. If we want to make it work, it has to have that as its foundation. In order to tell you how to do it so that we can actually do it, I will explain to you now several methods, one of which you should pick and then use for the time that we're going to do the meditation. And after we finish the meditation, I'll invite you to ask some questions about anything I have said or about your meditation. It's impossible to talk to each of you personally but after you've done the meditation, you may have an idea, especially those that are new to it, what it's all about and would like to ask some questions. That will be the time to do it then. So I'll explain the method of how to actually do it. Now, as first, the sitting posture. As you sit, you should try to find a way to put your legs where you can keep them. It doesn't matter where they are and how they are. Now, if you're sitting on a chair or a couch, you need to have your legs not crossed, but straight together and the feet flat on the ground and your back not leaning against the uh, backrest unless you have some physical ailment. The back should be straight but not military straight. The shoulders should be relaxed, the stomach should be relaxed, the neck should be relaxed. And the head should be straight forward, not hanging down and not hanging back. And we always meditate with our eyes closed and the hands can be in the lap, right on top of left, or they could be on your knees, palms up, 
or palms down, whichever you prefer. If you're sitting on the ground, your legs can be cross-legged or you can sit with the legs back so that the cushion is between your legs. But find some way of sitting comfortably. Now here's another little meditation stool that somebody can borrow for the meditation. It's <coughs> quite comfortable for some people. We're going to use the breath as the meditation subject. And there are five different ways of using the breath. Those of you who have practiced before, and I will repeat that, those of you who have practiced before, not beginners, can do as you've always done and can use the breath as you're used to using or just as at the nostrils where the wind of the breath goes in and out of the nostrils. For a beginner, that is quite difficult and almost impossible to keep your mind on for more than half a second and therefore rather useless. We need more input into the mind in order to keep it a little more interested. So those of you who have practiced before, do it as you've always done and can use the breath at the nostrils, the breath going in and out and the feeling of the wind being the focusing point. Then you can decide, the others, beginners, decide. Do you like numbers, words, pictures, or feeling? One of those four. Now you must know yourself well enough to know whether which one of those four you like best. And you are more comfortable with. If you like numbers, you count the breath. You can say one on the in-breath, one on the out-breath, two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath, no more than ten. Every time the mind goes off on a tangent, you go back to one. If you don't like it this way, you can do one on the in-breath, two on the out-breath, three on the in-breath, four on the out-breath, whichever you prefer. It doesn't matter. A method is a method by any name. It will never become the meditation. All that these methods are, are hooks to hang the mind on. It's only when we don't need the hook anymore that we start meditating. So we don't, it doesn't matter. You don't have to get attached to any particular method. The Buddha himself taught 40 different kinds of methods. I'm not going to teach you 40 in one evening, you can be sure. I'm teaching you one method in four different modes or five different modes. The first one I've already explained. Second one is number. Okay? The third one, words. You pick a word, something like peace. Or if you need two words, love and peace. Love on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. If that's too much, just peace. Peace on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath which means always, also with the number, always attention on the breath and the number or attention on the breath and the word. If you are a Buddhist, Buddha is very good, lends itself excellently to this. It means to the Buddha, Buddha on the in-breath, Ho on the out-breath. Any word you like. If English is not your mother tongue, use one from your mother tongue. 
it makes us not the slightest bit of difference. Do what you like, but try to stay on the meditation subject. So pick any word that seems right to you. Peace is well liked by many people. Some people like the word still. It is shorter and it makes it easier for them. Some people like a longer word like peace. It's a little longer because it's like a long E. So the breath is more accommodated to that. Don't make the breath anything. The breath has to be just as natural as it's always been. It's a mind that's getting the work done on it, not the breath. We're always breathing as long as we, are, as we are alive. So just let the breath be and be attentive to it. If you like, if you have a mind that likes to visualize, sees everything like a movie going past, then imagine the breath being a golden cloud that comes in and goes out. You might even see it narrowing, the cloud narrowing, and then expanding. Some people find that useful to keep their mind on it. It certainly is gold because our life depends on it. Without it, we're dead. So, and the last of the possibilities is feeling. Watching the breath go in through the nostrils and put attention on the feeling which is associated with that breath coming in as it goes down, maybe through the throat, into the lungs, maybe even as far as the stomach. The body seems to expand, there's a feeling with that, and as you breathe out, it seems to contract, and there's a feeling with that. So you can watch that. Pick any of these, and stay with it for that whole time we're going to meditate. We're only going to meditate 30 minutes, which is the minimum time we have to allow the mind to become settled. Having just come in from the outside world into this room, it is particularly difficult. In a meditation course, such as we, uh, I give when we have... Um, uh, people living in and staying there, people usually find the first two days quite difficult because all the stuff that's happened during the day is still all running around in the mind. Well, this too is interesting to learn what goes on in one's mind. So every time a thought arises, try to give it a label. Obviously, you're not going to catch every thought. Well, never mind. Even if you catch the fifth or the sixth one, it doesn't matter the one you do catch. And the label should be past or future. Worry, hoping, nonsense, um, disliking, being bored. What is actually happening? Not a label like, oh, I'm thinking of home now. Oh, I'm thinking of my work. Not like that. But what does it actually mean what I'm thinking about? Is it the future or is it the past? Is it something that makes any sense? Very often the thoughts which arise make no sense whatsoever. Or is it something I dislike or something I'm wishing for and hoping for? Or am I planning again? So give it a label. That accomplishes two things very effectively. First of all, it accomplishes the ability to let go. That you can compare 
to being in a supermarket and filling up your basket, a shopping basket, with lots of stuff from the shelves. And there are some very nice-looking cans there, very colorful, though you take them and put them in. And then you pick it up and look at it, and you see that it's cat food, and you don't even have a cat at home. So obviously, you're going to put them back. That finishes that. You've seen the label, it's useless. At this point, all thoughts are useless. So the minute you've given the label and seen the label, you're going to leave it. It's going to drop. And the second advantage we are having from this is that you can use this same technique in daily living, the labeling. And once you label your thoughts in daily living, you will see that some of them are totally useless and you will learn to drop them and not act upon them, not, not act upon them in speech or action, not act upon them in moods, but just drop them. And that way, our thinking during the day will have the ability to make our meditation easier, and not only that, it will make our life easier, because our thinking will then be on the positive side. Nobody who knows what they're doing are keeping negative thoughts. It has a third advantage, namely that a meditator no longer believes all the thoughts that are running around in his or her mind during the day. Because we have seen in meditation that most of them neither make sense nor have any usefulness. We're going to examine our thoughts carefully by labeling them and not always believe when we have dislikes, hates, rejections, resistances, but realize it isn't necessary. I can drop them. The act of dropping a thought in meditation is the same as the act of dropping a thought in daily living. And dropping a thought is a positive, deliberate act. It doesn't just happen. But through the labeling, it is facilitated because we see the label, we let go. So this is what happens with our thinking, which will take up most of the time of the meditation, unfortunately, for those who haven't trained themselves. But it is extremely <coughs> revealing and highly useful and gives us a real insight into ourselves where we constantly identify with our thoughts. If we now become honest about ourselves, we will see that we are identifying with thoughts which are not really worth identifying with, on the contrary. The second thing which uh, will happen, for those of you who are sitting on the ground, and it's a very, very important too, very use, useful teaching situation, are unpleasant feelings. And we can learn in, quite a lot about ourselves with those. The unpleasant feelings which arise are due to, in this case, touch contact. Now, we have five senses, and all these five senses are making contact. At the moment, the contact you're making is through seeing, hearing, touching, and then there's a sixth sense, namely thinking. So, at the moment, with the exception of smelling and tasting, most likely, all the senses are being used. Now, our contact that we make 
the sense object, what we see, what we hear, etc., always produces feeling. There's nothing we can do about it. It's automatic. And there are only three kinds of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We don't usually have any recollection of neutral feelings and think that they are rather pleasant because at least they're not unpleasant. So we have that advantage. So we are really only concerned with pleasant and unpleasant. As we're concerned with pleasant and unpleasant feelings, we are concerned with them practically all day long. In fact, our whole life is geared towards getting rid of the unpleasant ones and trying to keep the pleasant ones. The whole economy of this globe is built up upon that. Nobody buys anything that gives unpleasant feelings. We've got to have something that makes pleasant feelings arise, otherwise it can't be sold. So that is the way we are constituted. That it doesn't make us happy Our usual mode of uh, response, of reaction to these feelings of either unpleasantness or pleasantness is that we try to move away from the unpleasant feeling either by moving ourselves physically away from that spot or changing something in our environment or um, distracting ourselves or blaming someone. With the pleasant feelings, we try to keep them. Since we can't keep a feeling, we couldn't keep any feelings from birth to now. They've all gone. We have all have new ones every moment. Since we can't keep them, we spend time and energy trying to resurrect them. And this is part of our survival system, trying to get as many pleasant feelings as possible. Since it is impossible to have only pleasant feelings and if we spend all our time and energy trying to get them we are again not using our time for spiritual growth here when an unpleasant feeling arises we have a direct experience of this whatever I'm telling you may sound alright or not it doesn't really make any difference the only thing that makes any difference is that you find it out for yourself And this is what the Buddha said. I'm only giving the guidelines. All you have to do is have enough confidence to try and see if it's really true. If it is, keep going. If it isn't, do something else. Here, when an unpleasant feeling arises, the first instinctive reaction is to move the body, to get away from it. Now, in the meditation, we'll try and do something else. We will not react instinctively. Our instincts are our human heritage and are at the base of all our problems. They are geared towards the affirmation of self. And the affirmation of self is where we always run into other selves and knock each other about, which is not uncommon in everybody's life. When this unpleasant feeling in the sitting position arises, What we need to do is watch how it goes. Unpleasant feeling, perception says pain, mind says I don't like it, it could cut off my blood circulation, 
I'm sure that's bad for me. I should have sat on a chair. And a long string of ideas and responses. All because an unpleasant <coughs> feeling has arisen. The way to deal with this is to know that this is going on and to realize it isn't necessary. To realize that we can have an unpleasant feeling and not respond. Just realize it is unpleasant. I haven't asked it to come. Why am I calling it mine? I haven't even wanted it to come and yet it's mine. Can I just leave it be where it is and go back to the meditation subject? Now everybody can do that for a moment or two. Then when the mind says, well, this is all very well, but I, I can't stand this any longer, then move gently so as not to disturb your own mind too much and your neighbor's mind and admit that you've been conquered by an unpleasant feeling. It's perfectly all right. We all get conquered all the time, but we never admit it. This is the difference between seeing things as they are through meditation or just living like everybody else does. Now when we see that, that we've been conquered by an unpleasant feeling, but we're able to let go in the first one, two or three minutes, we already have something to work with in our daily lives. Somebody comes and is unfriendly uh, to us, starts abusing us, scolding us, blaming us. An unpleasant feeling arises. We realize it. Anger is coming up. Maybe we can just let it be and wait for it to re subside again. Maybe we don't have to respond. Maybe we can just wait a moment and see if it will either disappear again, as everything that has appeared has to disappear, or maybe we can change our response to something of equanimity, as we did when we went back to the meditation subject. The more we practice this, the easier it becomes, the more natural it becomes. And all our emotional difficulties eventually solve themselves <coughs> by themselves. They don't exist anymore. There's a story of a Burmese monk who was a very, very um, well-known uh, meditator and a very high-placed uh, monk, had been a monk since the age of 12, so when he was about 75, he came to Switzerland and he gave a meditation course there. And the story goes, he needed a translator because he didn't know any English or any other Western language. And the story goes that after he had finished with the private interviews with the meditators, he turned to his translator and he said to him, tell me, young man, what is an emotional problem? He'd been a monk that long, he'd forgotten that he, well, he was a monk since he was 12, so he'd never had any. I presume, I don't know. I, I was only told the story. But this is exactly what meditation will eventually provide. It's not that nothing is felt. Feelings are always there. But we don't have to respond to them and get ourselves into more trouble than we were already in the beginning by getting the feelings. So by having learned to not respond for a little while to this immediate trying to get away from the unpleasantness, we can then translate that into our daily living and say we don't always have to respond. We know the feeling is there, so don't let's discuss whether it's repression, no? because I've been discussing that so many times now. So I'll say it right away. If you know you have a feeling, it's not repression. Repression is when you don't admit it that you've got it. 
The Buddha teaches neither repression nor expression. Knowing and changing. So when we know, we can change. So here in the meditation, we can change from the reaction to the unpleasant feeling to one of equanimity and going back to the meditation subject. In daily life, we can learn to do the same. We can change from the feeling of anger, dislike, or whatever it may be, to one of equanimity and go back to the business at hand. We won't be able to do it right away, but at least we have a role model in ourselves. We know we've been able to do it once, even if it was only for a minute or two. And the more often we meditate, the easier it becomes. Now, the reason we have to use at least 30 minutes for our meditation, and this is the minimum that uh, is considered useful, is this. You can think of the mind as of a pond of, of water into which uh, a child is throwing stones. And the stones make ripples in that pond. And it takes time for those ripples to smooth out. The stones that are thrown into our mind are our sense contacts. Everything we've seen and heard and tasted and touched and smelled and thought during the day. And it's all making ripples and it's continuing to make ripples. And it may not even be enough to have 30 minutes to let the ripples subside. But we need a little time to have them subside because they're rippling in there. So the less input there is, of course, the less ripples but most people have lots of input. So that's why anything under 30 minutes for a non-experienced meditator is really not useful. We need that time to calm down. If one has a good experience in meditation, one can get quite concentrated very quickly. Otherwise, it's uh, more difficult. Now, I'll just repeat the modes of uh, meditation for those who are beginners. You either uh, combine the numbers with the breath, a word, or a visualization of a golden cloud, or the feelings which accompany the breath from the time it goes into the body and the time it goes out. Before we start, would you like to ask any questions that is anything that's unclear or anything that didn't make sense to you? In order to get started, please put the attention on the breath for just a moment as it goes in and out of the nostrils. Now imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart and it is slowly opening its petals until it's fully open. And a golden stream of light comes out of the center of that lotus flower and it fills you from head to toe with warmth and light and joy and peacefulness and it surrounds you with a feeling of love in which you can sit 
as if you were inside a soft golden cloud, safe and secure. Now let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to the person nearest you in this room and fill him or her with warmth and light and joy and peacefulness and surround him or her with love to make that person feel safe and secure And now let that golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to everyone here, filling everyone (coughs) with warmth and light and joy and peacefulness and embracing everyone with love. Think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them with the warmth from your heart and joy and peacefulness and embrace them with love. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with warmth and joy and peacefulness, embracing them with love without expecting them to return the same to you.
Now think of all your good friends. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with the depth and sincerity of your friendship, your warmth, joy and peacefulness, and embrace them in love without expecting them to return the same to you. Now think of your neighbors, people at work, people you meet on the street, in the shops, in the post office, anyone you see here and there. Make them part of your inner life. They are already part of your outer life. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart Reach out to them, filling them with the depths of friendship, warmth, joy and peacefulness, and surround them with your love. Think of anyone whom you find difficult to love, who may have put obstacles in your path, made some difficulties for you. Realize that this is nothing but a learning situation, that your own heart needs to be cleared of these obstacles, so that the golden stream of light from the center of your heart can reach out unobstructedly to that person also with forgiveness and love and warmth and joy.
think of all the people who live in Canberra. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out into their houses, into their hearts, filling them with warmth and joy and peacefulness, embracing them in love. thereby adding to the goodness existing in this world. Put your attention back on yourself. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart fill you, suffuse you and drench you with warmth and joyfulness and peacefulness and embrace you with love, giving you that feeling of safety and security which only love can give. Now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower, let it close its petals and anchor it in your heart so that it may become one with it. May beings everywhere have love and peace in their hearts. Some of you will have already done walking meditation, some of you might not, so I'll explain how to do it. We can, there's a veranda there, we can do it on, there's a hallway, we can do it in, and some can do it right here in the room. Each one takes a walking path, about, let's say, 20 paces long because we don't have so much room, and you go back and forth on that. You don't go the whole hallway. You take 20 paces and you make yourself a marker, maybe from one door to another door or something, where you know this is the beginning and this is the end of your own walking path. Go parallel to other people. Don't intersect with them because that's disturbing. You keep your eyes open but down and the eyes automatically go in front of the feet. There's nothing to look at. They just automatically go in front. You don't have to look at your feet. You don't need to look at your feet when you walk. Everybody knows how to walk. Just like we know how to breathe. We don't have to look at our breath. 
We just watch the walking with the mind, not with the eyes. The hands should be together in the front or in the back so that they don't dangle because that's also another disturbance. And we dissect the walking as such into three parts to start out with. Breathing, carrying, putting down. The first foot is fully down on the ground before the second one goes up. Raising, carrying, putting. Now, you can just watch the movement. And as you just watch the movement, it's just like with the breath, the movement, there is also a feeling. And that helps to focus. The feeling when the foot goes up is a feeling of lightness, of lifting. When it goes forward, it's a feeling of pushing. When it comes down, it's a feeling of falling. And there's a solid feeling when it touches. You can dissect into four parts. But in the beginning, it's usually easier to just use three. So raising, carrying, putting down. Now, is that difficult to put, keep your mind on? You can count. The same as with the breath. You can do one, two, three. One, two, three. You can use words. Raising, putting, uh, raising, carrying, putting. And again, the same thing. Or you can also use a visualization. Now here that isn't so easy because we haven't got any ground to walk on. If we walk on the ground uh, in the, the earth, it's easier. But for instance, here we could visualize, for instance, that no matter what we do, even if we stamp on the ground, it doesn't object. So as we raise our foot, we can imagine that we are giving some lightness to the ground. As we put it forward, we can imagine that we are still having that same lightness. We are not putting our heavy weight on it. And as we put it down, we put our full weight on the ground, but the ground doesn't object. There's no objection. So it's the same as we could be, no matter what happens. We could be at ease. We could have equanimity, no matter whether there's lightness or heaviness. This is only in order to keep the mind on what's going on. It's only devices to keep the mind focused instead of thinking. Again, when the thinking starts, give it a label and back to the meditation subject. <laughs> the first way is the movement, which has feeling in it. The second is with numbers. The third is with words. Any words you like. You don't have to use those. You can use other words. Or you can visualize the lightness that you give to the ground when you lift yourself up and then it's still it's light and then it becomes heavy again and there's no objection from the ground. Now, we can do that for about um, 20 minutes and I'll ring the bell when it's time to sit down again. I hope there's room for everybody to do that. I'm not sure how big the veranda is. Is it big? I can't see it. Yeah, that means going downstairs in the in the lift, though. No, there's a stairway. Yeah, but I mean that's a uh, real disturbance to do that. Hmm? It's a lot of hallways just on this ground too. On this on this level. Yeah, the building is very large, so if you. Ah, there's a lot of hallways on this level. Yeah. Okay, use the hallways on this level. Yeah, but now how am I going to get the people back here? <laughs> Just stay on this level, okay? Make it easy for me, all right? <laughs> Just stay on this level. 
Okay, and a little bit of veranda there, and there's of course room, all right? There's room also you can use. So is this quite clear what to do? Has any question? Anybody have any question? How to do it? The main thing is how at this point. Nothing? Okay. Oh. Sorry? Ah, yes, yes, you've got to watch that too. <laughs> when you turn around, you watch exactly the same movement, the same thing. If, you, if you're turning around, if you stand still a moment first and then you do your turning around, you can watch how the mind is in charge of the body, telling the body to turn around. This is a very important insight. And then as you watch, as you come to the turning around, you watch your lifting and carrying and putting again, the same uh, movement. But at the moment of standing still and making up your mind now to turn, it's very, very important to realize how the mind does the ordering around. 